As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, uh, soft landing yeah. seems to have sort of... In the uh, air. It's in the air. Uh, it's almost consensus at this point. I mean, markets are rallying, uh, shrugging off a lot of the survey data, which looks a little bit more pessimistic. Yeah. Which is all kind of strange because you still have big segments of the market, like bond yields, for instance, pointing towards recession. Yes, that's the really weird part to me. So risk assets, stock market, really nice start to the year, much different tenor than it had in 2022. We are recording this January 18th as of right now. The NASDAQ is up 7%. Of course, it got clobbered last year. But, you know, you look at something like the short end of the curve, three month, two year, markets are pricing in rate cuts really soon. And to my mind, I'm like, there's certainly going to happen if there's like a recession or some hard landing. Like it's hard for me to reconcile what we're seeing in different parts of the market right now. Absolutely. And it is it does seem to have happened very quickly this shift to uh you know everyone's focused on China reopening that unfolded pretty fast. Lots of the soft landing talk seems to have sort of come out of nowhere. You know, 2 or 3 months ago everyone was talking yeah. about entrenched inflation, the possibility of a wage price spiral. But Given the shift in sentiment, I think we need to speak with someone who has been consistent in their view that the world could avoid a high inflationary regime. Absolutely. Because you have a lot of people going back and forth. I even saw something in the Wall Street Journal that's like, maybe it was transitory <laughs> all along. And we hadn't heard that word and no one dared utter it for like six months. And everyone was ashamed at ever even having used that term transitory. And now suddenly it's creeping back that maybe that a lot of the inflation really was due to these like massive shocks we experienced, the pandemic and the war. And that as these things at least normalized to some extent, that the residual inflation, the entrenchedness would not be as high as some people were concerned about. Right. So today we are going to be speaking with someone who was always on team transitory, who <laughs> never left and defected like a lot of other people. I'm not going to name any names, uh, but someone who has been, I use that word consistent, someone who has been sort of banging the drum of this idea that actually a lot of the pandemic related disruptions might go away and we might return to more of what we saw over the past past few years or so, you know, low interest rates, lower growth, that sort of environment. So 
Without further ado, today we are going to be speaking with Victor Schwetz. He is, of course, global strategist over at Macquarie Capital, a repeat Odd Lots guest, one of our favorites. Victor, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So uh, what was it like being on Team Transitory <laughs> for the past year or so? I loved it. Um, <laughs> but for very simple reason, whenever everybody agrees, you know something is wrong. You know you need to get away from that. With inflation, I never felt I needed to get away. And the primary reason for me was that inflation that we have witnessed really have nothing to do with demand. If hmm. you think of the global economy, we're still below the trajectory pre-COVID. In other words, global demand is less than what it would have been if there was no COVID. The only country that it's slightly different is the US. But even in the US, the aggregate demand is only about 90 bips higher than it would have been if there was no COVID. So it's not so much aggregate demand. Rather, it is a disruption unprecedented disruption of the goods market, services market, labor market that was responsible for that. So if you think of the goods market, for example, if we go back 18 months ago, goods demand in the US and in Europe were about 10 to 15% higher than it would have been pre-COVID. So even if there was no disruption in ports, there was no disruption in supply, there was no way suppliers could have expected demand to be 15% higher than what it was. Today, if you think of Europe, goods demand is already below the pre-COVID trajectory. If you think of the United States, it's right back to where it should have been if there was no COVID. But then, before we normalized goods, we started to destabilize services. So you find if you go back 18 months ago, services would have been in the US about 15, 20% lower than it would have been pre-COVID. Today, they are within 2% of COVID. So in other words, services pretty much recovered. So even before we normalized goods, we started to destabilize services. Hmm. But theoretically, just like the goods market eventually normalizes, services market will eventually normalize. And the only problem, and that's your transitory part, the only problem if inflation become embedded in the goods market, in the labor market, in the wages market, as well as in the financial markets. And my argument for the last 12 months was that I don't see any evidence at all of embedding. Now, if you don't have the evidence of embedding, then inflation should come off pretty quickly, very similar to what happened in 1946, 1948. And central banks then will adjust their policies accordingly. So the reason I was not in favor of a global recession is that I never felt that we need to destroy demand in order to lower the inflation. It's interesting. So it's almost like the issue is not aggregate demand. It's almost like the issue was disaggregated demand. It was yes. this shift, and we have an infrastructure that was sort of designed for one sort of pattern of consumption, a certain amount of goods, certain amount of services, and it was this shift. You know, there still is this fear of embeddedness, and that, you know, and people who are against team transitory is like, yes, we know all the shocks, we know all the things, but it doesn't matter because if inflation is elevated for too long, it can risk becoming embedded. What is that process? What does that mean in your view for 
or uh, how could inflation become embedded? Mm. Well, you're absolutely right. The longer it lasts, the more likely it is to become embedded. But we live in a very different and unusual world in a sense that unlike 1960s and 1970s, where we had pretty much, certainly from late 60s into early 80s, pretty much inflationary pressures without any disinflationary offsets, or 1990s, 2000, when we had pretty much disinflationary pressures with no inflationary offsets. Today, we have both. We have very strong disinflationary pressures. That's your circular stagnation. In other words, demographics, inability to add labor inputs, things like wealth, extreme wealth inequalities, things like technology, things like financialization and indebtedness, they're incredibly strong. And they create an, a disinflationary backdrop now, against that, you need to look at frequent black swans and fat tails. That's what we keep discussing, is that normal distribution of events no longer exist. We're getting a lot of disruptions coming in. Now, whenever black swans arrive, and they could be healthcare-driven, they could be geopolitically driven, what we have, we have inflationary spikes that occur. But as soon as those pressures recede, either from a healthcare or geopolitical perspective, disinflation comes in very quickly. And so because of this disinflationary backdrop, it's incredibly hard to embed expectation mm. because you're not on a one-way street, mm. either as a financial markets or the labor market or the corporates. Think of corporates. Corporates these days, they regain pricing power for like a quarter or two, and then they lose it. And then they gain it again, or somebody else gains it. There is no consistency of corporate pricing power. There is no consistency of the labor pricing power, in which case it's very, very hard to embed those sorts of expectations. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I was about to ask you, what do you say to critics who, who maybe argue that it's too early to declare a win for mm. Team Transitory, given that CPI is still at 6.5%, but it, it sounds like you're making the argument that we can get these recurring spikes of disruption-related inflation, but then the, the deflation narrative will like rapidly reassert itself. So maybe a, a different way of asking that question, what would change your mind when it comes to endemic inflation? Is there something that you're looking out for for a sign that the regime really has changed? Yes, a couple of areas. One of them is uh, deglobalization. 
One of the things that I've been debating, whether deglobalization, as it progresses over the next 10, 10 years, whether it's inflationary. Because the underlying idea is that the essence of globalization is arbitrage, of cost, arbitrage, of efficiencies, opportunities. As you deglobalize, that arbitrage goes away, and therefore it's inflationary. One of the things I've been arguing is that this time around, deglobalization will not be inflationary. Hmm. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Reason number one is that labor is increasingly smaller percentage of the arbitrage. So if you go back 20, 30 years ago, labor in the, let's say, labor-intensive industries like clothing and footwear would have been 60, 70% of arbitrage. Today, it's only 30, 40%. In some of the newer industries, labor is as little as 5%. Huh. So in other words, labor is no longer as critical as it was 20 or 30 years ago. Secondly, um, unit labor costs in emerging markets have gone up. In other words, wages have increased faster than productivity. So in other words, the opportunities for arbitrage is getting less. The third area is services. These days, services is one-third of merchandise trade. You basically cannot do merchandise trade without services. Mm -hmm. And services have very different dynamics to merchandise trade. It can be located in various jurisdictions. It's much less inflationary. The other thing to remember, of course, is technology. Think of the United States. United States, between 1990 and 2007, deindustrialized, basically. You had manufacturing output in the U.S. growing only 1, 1.5% per Annum. Global growth was more like three and a half, four percent In other words, U.S. market share has rapidly declined. If you look over the last decade, U.S. has been matching global numbers. Manufacturing output's been growing at three, three and a half percent every year. Now, the reason for that, U.S. is reindustrializing. Hmm. But U.S. is reindustrializing in a very different form. This is not 1960s, 1970s. Much less fixed assets, much less labor, more robotics, more automation. And so you don't see it really in a labor force. So as a percentage of labor force, manufacturing is down relative to what it was 10 years ago, down from 9% to 8.4%. But U.S. is reindustrializing with a much more flexible cost structure. And so the result is onshoring that people expect probably won't be as inflationary as what people anticipate. So to me, there is a debate whether you look at the impact of technology, whether you look at the impact of services, whether you look at the impact of labor. I just don't see it's going to be inflationary at all as we gradually deglobalize. Or to put it the other way, globalization is dying a natural death. And it will die over the next 10, 15 years. A new form of globalization will emerge, which will not be dependent on relative costs or relative efficiencies. And so that's one area. If I'm wrong on that, then you find inflation become much more embedded. The other area is ESG particularly the E part of ESG. Right. And so if you look at ESG, again, my view is that I'm, I worry about ESG more than I worry about uh, deglobalization. But if you think of E, number one, we're going to take decades to do what we want to do. Nobody is going to touch the sacred goals of reduction of whatever it is we want to reduce. But we will be meandering towards that goal. We'll be trying to reconcile those objectives with the realities on the ground that we're facing. And so number one, it's going to take a long time. It's going to be a lot of meandering. Number two, 
we're going to cut costs, not just put on new costs the way a lot of people are expecting. And the third area is that technology is reducing the cost of new technology as you apply it. So even if I look at E, my argument basically, it might not be as inflationary as what people expect. Now, there will be pockets of commodities that will be inflationary. So, for example, oil, we've got plenty of oil. We just don't deliver it appropriately, but we've got plenty of oil. Coal, we've got plenty of coal. We're just, again, not using it the way we could have used it. But there are some commodities in a real shortage. Copper, nickel, cobalt, lithium, rare earths. So there will be some increases, substantial increases in the value of that. But overall, as I said, I'm not totally convinced that ESG actually will be inflationary. And the third area is geopolitics. As you know, my view, and that's why part of my portfolio is what I call bullets and prisons for the last 10 years, is that I believed in a geopolitical and social dislocation for a decade now. And I believe that the next 10 years could be even worse than the 10 years we've experienced Mm. so far. But geopolitics is a process. It's not an event. In other words, I usually say it took Hitler 15 years to come to power. So it doesn't happen overnight. And so the critical area to me is judging the periods where geopolitical pressures might be less acute and identifying periods where geopolitical pressures will be more acute, recognizing that over 10, 15 years period, it's going to be worse. But there will be windows of two or three years when those pressures actually will be less prevalent. And I think 2023 and 2024 Mm. will be a period of lower pressures, not higher pressures. There are so many different threads there. That was such a fascinating answer. I want to talk more about geopolitics. But before, I want to actually go back to what you were saying about the reindustrialization of the U.S. economy, because I think that's really fascinating, particularly, you know, thinking about the impact of some of the big legislation that was recently passed in the United States, the CHIPS Act, which attempts to onshore or recreate a domestic semiconductor capacity, and of course, the Inflation Reduction Act, which has incentives for domestic battery manufacturing, other things like that. Can you talk a little bit more about what this new vision of a sort of reindustrialized United States economy looks like and how you see the pretty big, substantial sort of industrial policy spending plan sort of moving the dial? I usually like to compare U.S. to China. And I basically say, think of China as the equivalent of the United States of 1970s. China today is responsible for about 30% of global manufacturing. China today is very heavy in fixed assets, very heavy in manufacturing, very low on cash flow, relatively low on intellectual inputs. This is exactly what the United States looked like in 1970s. So China is in the very earliest Hmm. stages of conventional deindustrialization. Whereas U.S. on the opposite side, and that is why people in Michigan and Ohio are voting the way they do, it's already had the body blow of deindustrialization and all the social consequences. And now they're approaching it from a different direction. How do we reindustrialize in a different form? And by the way, U.S. reindustrialization started a decade ago. This is predates Biden. It predates any of the plans because there are obvious ways of onshoring now at a very different cost structure and a very different positioning. That's why for a decade now, manufacturing output in the U.S. was broadly matching the global Mm. manufacturing output, and U.S. market share can no longer decline. So the interesting thing to me is that if I think of the U.S., 12, 13 million people or so in manufacturing, they are 
generating manufacturing output half of China's. Now, if you think of China, nobody really knows the numbers in the sense that we only measure urban employment. But there is also a lot of rural employment, which actually directly or indirectly feeds into manufacturing. So there are all sorts of estimates, but the numbers are anywhere from 80 to 150 million people involved directly or indirectly in manufacturing. So think of it this way, 12 million in the US generating half the output of what 80 to 150 million China laborers and and workers are manufacturing. That tells you how much more productive it is and what sort of lower unit labor cost you're gradually getting in the US. So the way I look at CHIP Act and everything else, is it US finally recognized that instead of just staying ahead of China, they do need to slow down China. In a sense, they do need to put China at least a couple of generations behind. And the problem is, in my view, there is not much China can do about it. Because at the end of the day, it's not about billions of dollars you want to spend. It's about science. And the reason Trump administration first up and then Biden administration were so successful at kneecapping the high-tech industries in China is because China completely depends on the Western intellectual contribution. If you cut it off, then the ability of China to maintain its position and improve its position is very significantly retarded. So the way I look, whether you look at batteries, whether you look at rare, rare earth and materials, whether you look at biotech, whether you look at chips, the idea is to try to put US even further ahead. And strategically, to me, that is the right approach. Ultimately, ultimately, nobody can hold anybody back for any length of time. But given the predominance of the US in intellectual sphere, given that almost everybody relies in some form on intellectual contribution of the United States, they can actually Hmm. widen the gap against China. So that's the way I look at that. Not so much there is a plan for reindustrialization as such. That's been happening for a Hmm. while, but shift the United States even more towards the frontier. China, on the other hand, is facing a a period of conventional deindustrialization over the next decade or two, which they need to they need to uh, challenge how to do that. They also face agricultural revolution. China had many revolutions, but agriculture was not one of them. Hmm. So China has a much lower output in agriculture, even though they deploy 288 million people in this area. U.S. has a fraction of that and a much larger agricultural yeah. output. So China is facing conventional deindustrialization. It's facing agricultural revolution or improvements in yields in agriculture that they need to do, and many other aspects compared to U.S., which just focusing on reindustrializing in a different form. Hmm. Just on the topic of China, you know, we mentioned in the intro that the reopening has become a big theme in markets, the prospect of China really trying to re-stimulate economic growth. And it does seem like to some extent they are opening these spigots of credit once again. They're rolling back some of the um, previous policy crackdowns on sectors like real estate, some aspects of consumer tech. Two questions here. One. Is the China reopening going to export inflation to the rest of the world because it stimulates higher demand, or is it going to export deflation because industrial capacity is getting boosted at the same time? And then secondly, 
is it possible for China to return to the period of high growth, you know, above 5%. And, Mm. you know, Joe mentioned that we're recording this on January 18th. I think we had China's GDP figures just a day or two ago coming in at sub 3%, something like that. Yeah. Well, answering sort of the second question first, if you think of beyond the recovery from COVID, so in other words, beyond second half of 23 and the first half of 24, if we start looking into 25, 26, 27 and beyond, I don't believe China can return back to anything like 5 6% GDP growth rates. And the reason for that is simple. Contribution of labor is now zero. In fact, even if you include quality adjustments, in other words, labor force becomes more educated over time, even if you include that, there is virtually no labor contribution. <laughs> Secondly, capital contribution has been very high. Look at the last year. It was all investment that drove the uh, China's, uh, China's performance. So the result is efficiency of capital utilization is declining. Incremental capital output ratios are now 8, 10 times. So in other words, you need 8, 10 dollars of investment for every dollar of GDP that you generate. That explains why China is reluctant to stimulate conventionally. It's reluctant Mm. to unleash infrastructure and real estate the same way as they did on the previous three occasions over the last 10 years, because they don't want efficiency of capital utilization continue to declining or the opposite side of it, debt increasing. Hmm. That's why China is carrying $60 trillion of debt right now. And that leaves you only with one area of growth, and that's multi-factor productivity. So if you don't contribute labor, if you constrain capital, you only have multi-factor productivity. Now, the problem is multi-factor productivity in China has been declining consistently for the last 10 years, even on official numbers. On unofficial numbers, it actually even bordering negative numbers. In other words, productivity detracts from GDP growth rates. So how do you restart productivity? Well, to me, there is only two ways. Either you go back to the policies from 1980s until GFC, and that is shrinking of the state, shrinking of the role of state-owned enterprises, opening up private sector. You either do that, chances of reversal of policy that they had since 2008 for the last 15 years, and that is the opposite of it, growing state-owned enterprises, growing the role of the state, chances of that reversal occurring is near zero. So what else do you have? Well, the only other way to grow productivity is through technology. This is your robotics, automation, fusion of infotech, biotech. This is your alternative energy, transport platforms. But this takes a very long time to come to pass. It's a right approach. It's totally a right approach, but it takes a very, very long time. So the only other way to try to grow productivity is to mix and match all of that as much as you can and embark on domestic services. Agriculture, we just talked about agriculture revolution, improving domestic productivity. Now, so to me, when I combine those numbers, I can't really see how they're going to come back to 5 6% growth rates. And if they do, they're either committing even more capital, which means insufficiency capital utilization declines, or somehow they find a way of growing productivity at a faster than I expect to at their pace. So that's the that's second question. The first question is harder. Mm. Because if you think of the first question, the opening up was so chaotic and so rapid that it creates both positives and negatives. First of all, you have a spread of COVID, you have meltdown of some of the production and capacity. But on the other hand, you have a promise of much more rapid recovery because there has been massive accumulation of cash, just like in the United States, just like in the UK. That cash will be drawn down 
as we go into the second half of 23 and the first half of 24. So there will be potentially massive increase in consumption occurring. At the same time, China is trying to control capital. In other words, you want to grow infrastructure, but not too much. You try to allow real estate to stabilize, but you don't really want to have a major real estate cycle. So depending how China balances investment versus consumption, and depending how much it recovers, it could be the case that suddenly China might demand another 1 million or 2 million barrels of oil, for example. Mm. Our in-house forecast right now is 600,000 barrels, which means it's more or less offsets weakness elsewhere. At the same time, more capacity, as you correctly says, comes in, and therefore more deflation is coming into the system. So my view right now is that the positives and negatives in the short-term balance, and therefore China is not going to be an inflationary agent. But longer term, as I said earlier, I, I really can't see how they consistently can return to 5 6%. Mm. It is interesting if you look at the price action in the market, we've seen a big surge in copper, which you yeah. would associate mm -hmm. with infrastructure investment and not that big an increase in oil prices, which is what you would associate with greater demand. Maybe maybe in the second half. Speaking of uh, China, and mm -hmm. I wanted to go back to your point about geopolitics and these are a long-term process, but you think maybe the next two years might be a little more mild on the headlines. I feel like that's always a risky call. Is. <laughs> but what what makes you think, how do you even begin to analyze a question, oh, is this going to be like a sort of hot year, volatile year versus a less volatile one in well, the geopolitics? Well, <clears throat> a couple of ways to look at it in my view. First of all, nobody pushes the envelope all the time because mm. if you push people for too long, people become tired. They become irritated whether it is domestic policies, whether it's international policies. And that's why even during wars, you don't have consistent wars. You have flare-ups and then you have relative quiet. In other words, to put it the other way, we don't kill each other every day. And so the key from an investment point of view, in my, uh, from my perspective, is to say, first of all, Russia, Ukraine, have you seen already the peak of economic, commodity, and political disruption out of Russia, Ukraine? The answer to me, categorical, yes. We can debate in 2023. Inevitably, Ukrainians will attack, Russians will counterattack, Russians will attack, Ukrainians will counterattack. But it appears to me more likely that neither side will be able to overwhelm the other, which implies that sometimes through 23 or into early 24, there has to be a process whereby they will draw the dotted line on the map. Nobody will agree on the conclusion because what Russia offering Ukraine will never Ukraine will never accept. What Ukraine is offering to Russia, Russia will never accept. But drawing a dotted line like North South Vietnam or North South Korea or Himalayas mm. or Kashmir. That is a very likely uh, proposition. Mm. Then you go on to other areas and say, okay, China was over the last four or five years or almost 10 years on a civilizational mission. In other words, how do you reshape society? How do you reshape politics? How do you reshape geopolitics, whether it's the trading rules, internet rules, information rules? I think over the next year or two, there is no doubt that China shifted much more to prioritizing economic stability and growth uh, rather than anything else and overcoming COVID. So I think it will be, I think China will be focusing on different things. Now, it doesn't mean that China will not react to whatever happens in Taiwan Straits. Uh, it would. 
but the degree to which China will go out of the way in order to aggravate the tension will be much more limited. And if you look at the Middle East, for example, you could argue that one of the underrated things, clearly, of Trump administration was Abraham Accords. Because they basically what they've done, they drew the line, who is the enemy and who is a friend. And as soon as you draw the line, it actually usually leads to a stalemate. In other words, nobody reconciled with anybody, nobody trusts anybody. But on the other hand, you don't have a chaos hmm. <laughs> that usually prevails in the Middle East. So when I look at it, the key areas are where tectonic plates collide. Yeah and where earthquakes are likely to happen, which is Ukraine, Belarus, which is Balkans, Middle East, the Himalayas, and the Taiwan Straits. I actually think the next couple of years is not going to be. Now, am I 100% confident? Of course not. <laughs> Nobody can be. But I think it's a bit unlikely that we're going to have a spike, anything equivalent to what we have experienced with Russia, Ukraine. Mm. Speaking of tectonic plates and the possibility of antagonistic battles, maybe we should talk about central banks and markets, mm -hmm. because there does seem to be an element of tension here where the Fed is talking about it wants to go hard on inflation, it cares about financial conditions tightening, and yet we've seen risk assets rallying recently, financial conditions loosening. Um, at, meanwhile, we're again, we're recording this on January 18th. We just had the Bank of Japan decision, the bond market in Japan certainly seems to be pushing up against the central bank there. How long can this tension go on for? Is there going to be a, a time or an event that maybe pushes markets and central banks into um, direct opposition? It all comes down to inflation. Coming back to the our starting point, what is inflation, how embedded it is, how, how much disinflation is going to come through because central banks have to be hawkish. And the reason they have to be hawkish, as you correctly said, the market is a forward-looking machine. And the market anticipating either or recession or greater disinflation coming through. So if you are easing off on your policy, what you find is that financial condition index will ease very rapidly. And before the time when you as a central bank are comfortable mm. that you're now in a position where you want to be. Now, to me, the markets are absolutely correct. What you're going to get, you're going to get longer term, less growth, longer term, less inflation, circular stagnation, the old Larry Summers words, are, well, he, he basically reenacted the, the old theory back from 1930s. But but circular stagnation is back at the heart of the system that we run. And so central banks need to get around to that point. Now, my view, uh, certainly for the last 12 months, was that sometime in 23, or so I should say late 22, central banks will start changing the rhetoric. Well, if you think of November, December 22, they already started doing it. They're already talking of dual mandate. We don't just have inflation. We need to balance inflation and growth. If you think of ECB, they're still talking now more. They're talking more about dual duality of what they deal with. I think all of that will become more pronounced as we go through the first and the second quarter of 2023. Sometime in 23, I think we'll get on the same page. Now, I to some extent depends on China, as we discussed early on, and how much it boosts the global economy and inflation. But in my books, the Federal Reserve will start cutting rates. Uh, QT will end sometimes for 23. I always point at the middle of 23, but it could be later. But QT will end. 
As we go into 2024, I think not only the rates will be cut, but some version of QEs also will come back. Hmm. And that will push you up in terms of growth, up in terms of interest rate down. Now, if you think of equities, what is equities? Equities is earnings per share, risk-free rate, and equity risk premiums. Now, earnings per share will be more constrained. Because as I said, we are in 23, we're probably going to have 2% global GDP growth rates. Remember, even the U.S. equities these days have close EPS relationship to global GDP than they do to U.S. GDP. Huh. So you're going to get more restricted EPS. Even in 24, you're not going to return back to 10, 12% EPS growth rates. But there is no need for massive cuts to negative 10, negative 20% EPS. So from an investor point of view, you basically know, yes, you'll be scanning close to zero, but you're not going to collapse in EPS. Now, the second part of it, which is risk-free rate and equity risk premium, what we've just discussed is environment where risk-free rates will be lower. And at the same time, equity risk premiums also could be lower because we've avoided the worst outcomes. We've avoided bankruptcies. We've avoided the worst possible outcomes. So to me, it's almost like a Goldilocks that is likely to occur. And that's why in November last year, when, when I previewed 23, I basically argued that 23 is likely to have a much better risk-reward balance than 2022, perhaps low volatility than 22. Doesn't mean equities as an asset class will appreciate significantly, but it doesn't mean that you need to cut another 25 or 30% out of the current equity value. It's almost like mini Goldilocks emerging mm. through 23, 24. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just on the topic of financial conditions, I have a, um, a slightly weird question, but I feel like you're a good person to ask weird questions. If most of the inflation is about, you know, we can call them transitory or transient or narrow um, disruptions, then do financial conditions actually matter when it comes to bringing down inflation? Mm. It's a good question, because if you think about it, the same applies to the yield curves mm. and extent to which the yield curves convey the right information to you, when a lot of people and a lot of businesses no longer depend on the banks right. uh, and the bank's lending. You have the bond markets, you have a wholesale, you have a shadow banking, yet there's so many other things in there. For financial condition index, is basically amalgamation 
of various spreads, which is a high yield market, uh, which is triple C debt, which is volatility of the bond market, volatility of equity markets. So it's got a variety of those elements in one number. As any given number, it's not perfect because there's just too many elements together. But directionally, they are correct. So you find when you do have an easing of financial condition index, on balance, you would argue that it is easier to transact. It is easier to do stuff than it was before, which means it does support more economic activity. But this idea that you, as soon as you go into you know, inverse yield curves for a period of nine months, you always have recession. I think this is very much industrial age idea going mm. back to 50s and 60s and 70s, 80s and 90s. So I don't necessarily buy that that is the, and by the way, it can be reversed overnight. Because remember, not only we have ample capital, because we have more capital than we need, which is very unusual in the human history. We always had shortage of capital. But we have more capital than we need. But at the same time, we did fully digitized, which means investors can react in a split second. It means central banks can react, react in a split second. That also means communication policy is a single most important tool that central banks have. And so, and so to me, the inversion of the yield curve could disappear in the afternoon. It really could take just a couple of hours. And there is no inversion occurring. I, I want to talk about that further. I mean, you anticipated my next question. And I mentioned in the very introduction, you know, the short end of the curve is interesting because it, it implies, right, that cuts are coming soon. If, if you take it literally, the three-month, two-year portion of the U.S. yield curve, negative 58, it's like basically the lowest since the great financial crisis. Is the Fed going to be cutting soon? What would it take? Would it take recession? Would it merely take disinflation? Like, what would it take, in your view, for the Fed to go into rate cut mode? Well, and the, the other question is, doesn't really matter uh, the, the well, numbers you've just mentioned. And if that number persists for a period of time, does it really matter to what you do uh, and what the economy does? Now, my, my view, my view is that. What we're going to see, it's sort of, I describe it as a pendulum, if you remember last time we talked. Yeah. That what we have is a rapid pendulum shifts from one direction to another. And that's why my view was that inflation is going to fall much faster than okay. what Federal Reserve or central banks believe. And in fact, the specter of disinflation could become much more pronounced as we go towards the end of 23 into 24. As I said earlier on, China could make a very significant difference to what will happen, but that still remains my, my base case. So it comes back to inflation, disinflation, and growth, extent to which Federal Reserve and other central banks feel comfortable that inflation is not a persistent problem, that it's not embedding itself, that a lot of elements were truly transient rather than necessarily embedding themselves into wages market, labor market, or product or, or goods market, an extent to which the second part of the mandate, which is to do with maintaining certain level of economic growth rates, becomes much more important. So if inflation, uh, if, we, if the, the pendulum theory or the pendulum framework is correct, and if inflation comes down much more rapidly than uh, they expect, it's plausible that we could get cuts even in the absence of recession just because they want to maintain that Correct. low unemployment interest. Exactly okay. right. Exactly right. 
And that's where the balancing. So what you find, you have more and more governors, because the way Federal Reserve uh, communicates, it basically gets those governors to talk publicly. Yeah. And so more and more of those governors will be coming out and saying, well, I think we've done a heavy lifting. They'll be saying things like, you know, monetary policies work with the variable and long lags. They will start talking about, we need to think about maintaining our employment and growth at an acceptable level. So you get a lot more of that communication coming out, uh, out of all of this. And as soon as Federal Reserve changes, other central banks will follow suit. Now, there are a couple of unusual players. One of them is clearly China, which because of the closed nature of the economy and because it's state capitalism economy, it doesn't really conform to those cycles that we've just discussed. Mm. And the other one is uh, is Japan and the extent to which Japan is on a different tangent compared to everybody else. But if you think of Federal Reserve, if you think of ECB, if you think of Bank of Canada, if you think of BOE, all of them, I think, will be pretty much on the same on the same page. And the only question is, and that's a legitimate debate, whether central banks will over-tighten mm. uh, and whether, in fact, central banks right. will perpetuate policy errors without reversing them. My view is no. Even if they over-tighten, they can reverse it in split second. That comes back mm. to my argument right. that we have surplus of capital, not shortage of capital. Remember, a little US, bit like December US, 2018. They- U.S. liquidity system. If you think of U.S. liquidity system, uh, banks currently maintain $2.2 trillion in reverse repos. Now, remember, reverse repos is just net balance of the system. So there is a surplus of $2.2 trillion that banks cannot deploy, or at least they don't see way of deploying that capital other than depositing it with, with Federal Reserve on an overnight basis. So so, so the way, the way I look at it is that we have plenty of capital. We are fully digitized. We're dependent entirely on the communication strategy. We can reverse a bear market into bull market in two hours, maybe minutes, <laughs> maybe minutes. And, and Joe, as you correctly said, just remember 2018. Remember 2019. Right. Remember, Federal Reserve restarted QE and was cutting rates about five months before COVID. COVID wasn't even there. Nobody yeah. knew that there was such thing as COVID. So you can see how uh, that will happen. Now, a lot of clients saying that COVID is such a dramatic event that we are permanently repricing capital, permanently repricing risk. We are now in a completely different environment. Uh, I I disagree with that. Uh, COVID, in my view, accelerated some of the pre-existing trends. For example, these days we rely more on fiscal levels than what we did in the previous 20, 30 years. It accelerated some pre-existing trends like geopolitics, for example, in the black swans. But otherwise, I don't think it changed the nature of what we do. Think of sectoral balances. Now, in the U.S., we're already drawn down private sector savings. So, so you find net savings by the private sector as of December, uh, as of September 2022, was almost zero. Now, government is not cutting savings as much. You know, the government actually deceiving. Right. And so the result is what's happening is that the rest of the world balance for U.S. is growing. It's back to 4%. So if you think of the U.S., U.K., your traditional supplies of real demand in the economy, they're already back to pre-COVID. They're already, they're already generating deficits that they require other countries to finance. That means the opposite is also true. 
because it's it's a accounting accounting identity. It has to be true that the rest of the world is going back to supplying capital. So so whether I look at impact of technology, impact of demographics, whether you look at the impact of financialization, whether you look at sectoral balances, everything tells me that we are reverting to pre-COVID times. And therefore, this idea that we're permanently repricing capital, cheap money is gone forever. To me, that's just nonsense. Victor, I think that's a great place yeah. to leave it. We could easily talk for absolutely hours Another hour, here. Yeah. But yeah, thank you so much for, for coming back on All Thoughts. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was great. That was really great. Joe, it's always wonderful to talk to Victor, but there was so much to pull out of that conversation. I'm actually having trouble um, (laughs) picking just one or two highlights. I did think the comments about globalization were incredibly interesting. And we tend to think of globalization as this like monolithic process that can only go in one direction. But this notion that actually you can have different types of globalization with different results. Right. And so this idea is like, okay, the world like uh, Davos is happening right now. And I'm sure there are a lot of people (laughs) talking about deglobalization. Is this our Davos episode? Decoup- <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder if we'll ever do like a Davos, Davos episode. Anyway, <laughs> uh, like, you know, people are anxious about that. But this idea that it's like, well, maybe it's something different and that actually the sort of disinflationary impulses that we associated with globalization for 40 years or 30 years or 20 years or however long you want to identify it, maybe that hasn't been the story in a long time anyway. And as such, the idea that... COVID was going to mark some huge trend break from that is just the wrong way to think about mm-hmm. it from the first place. Absolutely. Also, the idea that maybe the yield curve isn't that well suited to yeah. providing information in the sort of post-industrial age. I thought that was interesting as well. And something that I think we've written about at various points of time, the idea that there are so many factors that go into bond yields now, not all of them related to the actual real economy, that maybe it doesn't make sense to be looking at the yield curve for that sort of information about what the market expects. You know what a headline I'm looking at on the terminal is right now that came from earlier? Oh, God. What is it? Larry Summers, now more optimistic on the U.S. outlook than three months ago. Everyone coming around. Everyone uh, coming around. You know what else I thought was really interesting was um, uh, the comments on geopolitics that Mm -hmm. maybe we get – because geopolitics always seems like one of those things where it's like the idea of like – forecasting or it seems like very difficult and it feels like the risks are always sort of in one direction there's some black swan but this idea that maybe like we're in a position where if you look at the major pressure points or as victor identified the tectonic plates or the intersection points maybe this is a period of some like depressurization i'm hopeful i want it to be true i don't know if it'll be if it will be but i thought that was an interesting comment yeah Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. Okay. This has been another episode of the Odd Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producers on Twitter, Carmen Rodriguez. She's at Carmen Armin Dash Bennett. He's at Dashbot. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. And for more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd We post the transcripts, we blog, we have a weekly newsletter, comes out every Friday. Go there, sign up. Thanks for listening.
Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.